0: Hi, this is Chris Stewart from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Please reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at oasisathens at gmail.com. If there's anything that you need, or if you have any questions, we want to continue to serve and minister to the needs of our community. May God bless you today, and we hope you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Okay, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and we're going to read verse 14. Very short, simple verse. Do you remember what year it was, April, when we bought our first house? Yeah, 97. The year you were born. <laughs> Yeah, because Brock was born the next year. So, well, in, in 1997, April and I bought a house. We were living in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, um, we remodeled that thing completely. I mean, we we pretty much gutted the whole interior of it, and and uh, we were really excited, really proud of this this home that we bought for ourselves. It was the first home that we had purchased as a married couple, and and so of course, you know, we wanted to make it our own, and so we. We did all of the, the the remodeling inside. The new put new flooring down, uh, and you know, new painted every single wall. And then when we were finished with the inside, we went outside, of course, and did landscaping. And we kind of redid the, all the, the landscaping out in front of the porch. And and uh, we had one of our uh, one of the I think it was our worship pastor, wasn't it? John Holzapfel helped us buy a bunch of bushes and and plants. And and we, I learned more about perennials and annuals and all that than I never cared to know. And uh, they were, that we had flowers and things like that. And, and, and I remember being really, really proud of, of, of all of that, right. And wanting to take care of it and carefully making sure that we were watering and, and, um, and, you know, really, really just, just doing everything we could to nourish and tend to all of these, this, this, this beautiful landscaping. And there was this one, this one bush or this one plant, I don't know what it was, a vine or something that that uh, that was that was growing and doing really well and one day i was out mowing the grass and i had the weed eater and i was just trimming around all the edge of the the landscaping there and in a careless instant i severed that plant that the root of that of that or the at the toward the bottom of it there this plant and tending to and caring for for some time as a, as a young married couple that we were really proud of. And I was shocked because I realized that in that moment there was nothing that I could do to fix this. Something that we had taken care of and, and, and watched it grow, watched it make it through different kinds of weather. We went through a winter and then it came back in the spring and then we watched it grow and just an instant I killed it. That is what adultery is like. In Psalm one twenty-eight, verse three, God compares um, the marriage relationship to a vine, and 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 this 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 the psalmist writes that that a wife is like a fruitful vine, and that children are like olive shoots that are a blessing that sit around your table, and so God is comparing marriage to to a vine, and and the, and and if you think about it. It's a it's a really great comparison because you have to invest a lot in it. You've got to you've got to wait a long time as you nourish and water and 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 tend to it. And you got to be really patient to watch it grow and be fruitful, and and that's what a marriage is like. And then adultery is literally severing it near the base of the vine. And what's interesting about how vines grow is that is that they when they begin to die, you don't necessarily notice it all at once, right? The leaves may stay green for a few days, and 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 then just start to wither over time. And the reason why is because that nourishment isn't able to come from near the base of the vine, and so eventually it just all begins to wither, and then it, and it, it dies. And so when I went when I killed our plant, I tried to go back to continue to nourish it and reinvest in it, and and wait patiently for it to to grow back. You know, tried to prop it up and things like that, and just hoping and praying that it might be revived. And I say that because I don't know where you are today. All's watching this, and I don't know who is participating in this online service and investing into this message and going to stay with us for the next thirty minutes or so. But I hope that that is the path that 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 you will that God would help you to choose today. If in fact you do feel broken, if in fact you do feel like something has been severed, that 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 you would be able to choose a path of can't can continue to nourish and reinvest and patiently wait to start over and revive this. And uh, and that's that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. It's not an easy thing to talk about. For some people, this could be a, one of those really difficult moments to listen to. Um, I know that these topics have a tendency to hit closer to home for some people than for others, and my hope is that you would hear me bringing God's word to you in a really practical and helpful way God says in the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. This is what we've been studying. So if you're if you've not been with us, our, our church, um, we are we're we consider ourselves a Bible teaching church, which means that we, while there are a lot of things that we certainly could be talking about in today's world. Uh, on a weekly basis as a church, um, the, the greatest priority for us is, is the Bible. The greatest priority for us is what God has given us in his word. And we believe that what God has given us in his word will cover all of the, 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 the fringe cultural topics of the day. And if we invest our hearts and our minds in His Word, we will know how to respond to things that seem confusing in our day. And so, we've just decided, if, you know, well, seven weeks ago, to begin a series in Exodus chapter 20 on the Ten Commandments. I had actually never preached the Ten Commandments before, and so, and so, I decided that that would that would be something that that we would do as a as a church. Welcome all of you that that have joined Oasis in these last several weeks online and today we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20 studying commandment number 7 which is verse 14 and that commandment just says really simply you shall not commit adultery you shall not commit adultery. You know, one of the great joys that I've had as you know, being a pastor in our in this community, and, and where I'm, where I close to where I grew up. So I, I'm a pastor very near to the to the place I grew up. So I'm living in Athens County. I grew up in Meigs County, and it's also a community where I'm a coach. I work in the community. I have a job at the university. I, I at one point was teaching school uh, in at uh, Eastern High School. Uh, I was working at uh, for uh, the County Board of Developmental Disabilities. So I've had a lot of opportunity to meet a lot of people, to get to know a lot of people. And, and it's so often people grow up together um, who were maybe children and get to know one another and then maybe even decide to get married. It's been a really great honor for me to be able to be there on many, maybe perhaps of you who are watching today, many of your wedding days. I've had the, the privilege to officiate um, weddings for people that have grown up in my church, people who I grew up with that attended my church, people that I've pastored with, that I've coached on my baseball teams, um, people that I once taught in school, uh, relatives, family members, and wedding days are really, really cool, incredible days to get to share with people. Um, but the most important day, and this is something I always tell people when I sit down with them for to do premarital counseling, one of the things that I always tell a couple is that is this the most important day, although this is a really awesome day, your wedding day is that's not the most important day. That's the beginning of your marriage. The most important day is going to be the last day of your marriage. How will it come? Will it come surely? Will you sever your own vine? Will it come painfully? Or will that last day be a pleasant last day where you get to hold the hand of your spouse and and say goodbye to them? As we read in the Bible, the first wedding that ever took place between our first parents was immediately preceded, or or it it immediately was followed by, the, the wedding was immediately followed up with what I'd consider to be a war there wasn't there was not a reception celebration for Adam and Eve's wedding, but it was more like a war. It was a spiritual war, an emotional war, a relational war it was a war. you see Satan didn't even show up to Adam and Eve until after they were married. I always find that to be a kind of a curious thing. you ever think about that they didn't I mean you know some of us some some for example some of you some of you are single right and, and well, as soon as I get married, everything will be easier right actually. Satan didn't even show up until after our first parents were married. So the storyline of the Bible, the way the Bible you know, begins, is it goes from a wedding immediately into a war. And, and honestly, there's been a war from the beginning surrounding this, this God-ordained relationship that we know of as, as marriage. So God speaks and he says to us, in these Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not commit adultery. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning just dealing with this, this, this sentence, this command, in some really practical ways. And, and I know that whenever I'm talking to an audience, regardless of what the audience, you know, how Christian or unchristian the audience is, I know that there are likely two categories of people who are listening. Some of you have already done this, and you're wondering, what do I do next? some of you have not yet done this and you don't feel the sense of urgency that maybe you probably should. And so to begin with, I think what we've got to do in order to understand adultery and understand how God feels about it, we really got to understand what marriage is. And so we've got to answer this question. What is marriage? We live in a day, I understand, where that is a profoundly confusing question to answer. It doesn't have to be confusing, but we are confused. We're confused about everything, let's just be honest, right? We the culture that we live in today, it, it, we are confused about everything and we're really confused about marriage. You see marriage in the Bible is a is a sacred thing. Marriage as as one who is teaching the Bible as a Christian, I believe that marriage is created by God. God officiates the first wedding between the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve. He brings them together, and he is the one who institutes this, this incredible relationship. And it's for a much deeper purpose than maybe you've ever considered before. But there are a couple things I want to tell you, you know, about marriage in terms of how we define it as, as Bible-believing Christians. If you believe what the Bible says, if you believe in God, you call yourself And this is what the scripture teaches us marriage is. It's really two things. We could debate it all day long. We could say it's a lot of things. But but if you boil it down, I want to boil it down as simple as I can to these two things. Covenant and consummation. When you look at the Bible, you see that God God shares with us what marriage is in basically two ways, covenant and consummation. So first of all, you see covenant. In Malachi chapter 2, I believe it's like verse 14. It's somewhere in the middle there, chapter 2. It, it, it says this, and it actually says this in other places in the Old Testament as well. But it says this, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. So he's speaking to, he's speaking to men here, and he's saying, he said, She is your companion and your wife by Covenant. So look that up. Look it's 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 right around Malachi chapter 2 verse 14. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. She is your companion by covenant. And so when God says that 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 is what defines this companionship of marriage, it's this word covenant. I think it's important for us to understand what covenant is. There's a big debate in our day and has been there's been this big debate in for as long as I've been alive and it's been around for as long as culture has has been has been Instituting a relationship called marriage as well, and that debate is: well, is marriage a civil contract or is it a biblical covenant? Do we have the right to define marriage by what the scripture says? Well, a civil contract is a, is is really just between two people. That's what a civil contract is. It's more of a business arrangement. It's a legal agreement, right? So, two business partners kind of you know merge together into one firm. So it's a civil it's a civil agreement, right? And you write a contract up and as long as both parties keep the the terms of the contract and the contract is good but as soon as the somebody might break one of the terms of the contract then the contract is null and void and a lot of people look at marriage in that way the problem is the the, the one who instituted marriage did did not set it up that way the christian understanding the biblical understanding for what a marriage is is not is not merely a civil agreement but covenantal meaning it's not just two people. Marriage is never intended to just be between a, a person and a person. It's intended to be between man and wife and the God who oversees that covenant. That's, that's the way God describes this thing, marriage. You see, listen, that's why we see, as, that's why Christians see marriage differently than the greater culture does because we are, we, we say, we, we are trying to be true to teaching the Bible. And I hope you understand that as Bible-believing Christians, it is perfectly okay for you to have that understanding. Whenever a couple comes to me and they ask me if I would officiate their wedding, the first thing that I ask them back, the first thing I do is I ask them a question. And the question that I ask them is, why do you want me, a Christian pastor, to oversee your wedding? And I want them to understand that my responsibility, my first and foremost responsibility is to God and to his word, which is the basis for what I believe marriage to be, which means if you if you desire to have marriage get your wedding, then we're going to sit down together over a series of, of meetings and we're going to discuss everything that we discuss about marriage in preparation for the marriage, not just preparation for the wedding ceremony, but everything we discuss in preparation for your marriage is going to be from the scriptures. That's why I always incorporate a premarital counseling process of several meetings to help them understand the terms and the conditions and the requirement of God's marriage covenant according to the teachings of scripture. In addition, I, I, I actually also would never, I would I would never marry anyone that if I were not convinced that they were taking their covenant with God seriously. And so it's one of the things that I, I really want to make sure that they understand is, look, if, we, if you understand what a covenant is, then, then we will we will say, yeah, I'll we'll go, through, I will go through and marry you, right? I mean, they. Uh, I think there's only been one time in the history of me performing weddings that I, I said no to a couple. It was a long time ago, and none of you know who they are. So, um, they came back later and thanked me because they said it would have been the wrong thing to do. Uh, so understanding marriage as covenant is of primary importance as a Christian. If you are a Christian and you have never considered this, then please stay locked in here today because it is it is of it is of vital importance to you in understanding this relationship that God has given. So as Christians, we don't just view marriage as a civil arrangement, but as a covenant The distinction is really, really significant. We want to be really, really clear that what is civil is civil and what is covenantal is covenantal. And our view of marriage is entirely guided by the scriptures. And it doesn't matter what vote is taken or what lawyers determine. Ultimately, what we care about is what God has spoken. So it's covenantal, which means means it is permanent. It is exclusive. It is sacred. That's what it means. The second thing I said it was was consummation. So marriage is covenantal, but it also includes consummation. So what that means is two people who are together are not married because they have, they don't have the covenant aspect. All they have is the consummation aspect. Two people who are really good friends and they love one another and they spend a lot of time together, but they've not entered into the covenant and consummated it. Um, they, they are not. They are not married. That's why it's got to be both covenant and consummation. And this consummation aspect is actually spoken of back in Genesis at creation, um, in Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four, where God is speaking. Moses is recording um, the words here of our first parents, the account of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So there's the covenant, right? And then it says the two shall become one flesh. And there's the consummation. So if, if you want to be a Christian, please understand this. Christians think differently about everything. It's not just this thing. It's not, I mean, you know, there'll be a lot of issues that come up in culture that look very different than what the Bible teaches. And when that happens, you will be faced with a question. What do I value more? What do I desire more? Is culture more valuable to me? Or is my faith in a loving and benevolent God more valuable to me? Is my image in the public eye? more important? Or is who I am in God's eyes more important? I mean, very simply, Christians believe that we are made in the image and in the likeness of God, both male and female, created in the image and likeness of God. And that when God created male and female, and he put them together in a covenant relationship, that is when he spoke the words, it is good. It was only after that, that he said, it is good. Do you realize, you ever noticed that? The way things unfolded there in creation, in the creation of man and woman, the chronology of events, the way God viewed what he was doing as he was creating everything in this world, the things that God's, you know, things like the words that God spoke after after the things that he created to, to, you know, to, to talk about how he felt about what was doing. Let's you know flip back there real quick in Genesis chapter two. In Genesis chapter two. We see that, you know, well, first in chapter one, God creates everything, right? He creates, he creates all the, you know, the heavens and the earth. He separates the water from the land. Uh, He creates, he puts, he creates trees. He puts, he makes vegetation. Then he puts fish in the sea. He puts birds in the air creates animals and after everything that he creates so all those days it is good at the end of all those days he looked at what he created and said it is good at the end of day one it is good day two it is good day three it is good and then we come to day six chapter two Genesis chapter two and God creates man from the dust of the earth he just picks up some dust and he, he creates man he breathes life into him he puts him in the garden and he tells him that he can have anything and everything there. He can, he can enjoy everything that's been created. It's all for him to rule over and enjoy, but just rely solely on God for your well being. God will take care of you. But then God takes a second look at man and he looks this creature over that he has made and he says, this is verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. Has that ever struck you as an interesting comment? I mean, everything else that God created, the dogs, right? <laughs> Even the dogs, it is good, right? Even the anim- the animals, the trees, the plants, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then, man, eh, it's not good enough. You feel that, guys? You feel that? It's just not, we're not all by ourselves, it's not good. Why? Here's why. Listen, this is so important. Because the goal was to create this human being in the full and complete image of God himself. And when man by himself was not able to reflect the full and complete image of God, God said, that's not good enough. And he makes woman and he puts them together in a marriage relationship, a marriage covenant. What this means is that the primary purpose and foundation of the marriage covenant bringing one man and one woman together in a fully consummated relationship is the way that the human race is able to reflect the image of God fully have you ever paused to consider that I mean that means you husband and wife you're intended to be a living breathing daily example in this world of what the image of God looks like. I mean, yes, we take this issue of marriage very seriously. It is a gospel issue, it is a God issue. God created you in his image, he put you together. Marriage is an illustration, it's a pattern, it's a precedent, it's a foreshadowing of something far more significant and greater than just two people living together. This is why we believe that marriage is not just a civil contractual agreement, but it's a covenant. It is defined by covenant in the presence of God and in the consummation between husband and wife. According to the Bible, marriage is a portrait of so many greater things. I mean, you flip over into the New Testament and you see an even greater illustration. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that marriage is to be a portrait and a symbol and a picture of Jesus's love for his church. You can read that in Ephesians chapter five. So mark that down and go over and read it. But it's, here's what it says: It says that Christ loved the church and gave himself himself up for her to present her, or to present her to himself as a radiant bride without blemish or spot and then history ultimately culminates in revelation 19 so the beginning of the of the scripture we taught we we learned that the relationship between god and man is about marriage we we learned that the relationship between jesus and the church is about marriage in the middle and at the end in revelation 19 the whole the whole thing is going to culminate at the end a wedding feast that's what that's the way this thing ends that's the way this world ends the, many of you love going to an amazing wedding between a bride and a groom who love each other and those, those are you shaking your head no, I don't really love that. I saw you out of the corner of my eye, but that reception's fun though, right? I mean, it depends the receptions are, you know, heck in, in Jesus' day, the receptions lasted a week right? remember that wedding feast he went to? and he, they ran out of wine and they were all freaking out and Jesus like, oh no worries, I'm here I got this, right? And they were able to continue on, otherwise the bride and the groom would have been disgraced, that, I mean they knew how to throw a re- wedding reception, so anyway way, anyway, you know, it, it, the whole idea of a wedding is, is a God-ordained thing because that it provides such a great example of the way God loves, loves his people. I mean, ultimately, the greatest wedding of all is that wedding between Jesus and his people. And then Revelation chapter 19 says that history is going to end with a great wedding supper of the Lamb, and that the church is like the bride wearing white on that day. I know this imagery is often hard for men, like it makes men uncomfortable, like trying to imagine, you know, being a bride married to Jesus. But that's not the point. You know, we're not individually brides married to Jesus. But collectively, the church collectively, as we relate to Jesus, we relate in the same way that a husband and wife relate to one another with respect, with fellowship, with adoration, with a covenantal affection and love and fidelity and we don't worship other gods, because that's adultery. You see, that's why in the Bible, idolatry is always compared to adultery. You ever notice that? In the Old Testament, the metaphor that God most often uses for pointing out idolatry among his people is the image of a bride cheating on her husband. So when we're out worshiping other gods, we're cheating on Jesus. When we participate and or attempt to create our own spirituality, our own morality, we're cheating on Jesus. The Bible presents the church to be like a bride and that Jesus is like a groom and that all of marriage, the, ins- the whole institution of marriage is to present and prepare people for that ultimate reality. Listen, God had a purpose for marriage and it wasn't just that we would be fruitful and multiply in this world, but that we would be an example of God himself, the image of God and the example of God's love for his people. And so as a result, marriage then is seen as far more than just a man and a woman living together in a contractual relationship. It's covenantal and includes the Lord Jesus, the portrait of the church and the eternal kingdom of God is to be a picture of what a saving relationship with Jesus looks like. And and that relationship with Jesus is obviously not sexual, but it's spiritual, where after the resurrection of the dead, all things are made new, just like a bride and her husband will go and live together, right? Man will leave his father and mother and go and, and be consummated with his wife, and they will live together. At the very end, God's people will go and live forever in his kingdom with Jesus, the place that Jesus is preparing for us right now. And so marriage, if it is covenantal, what happens then when you break that that covenant? That's what adultery is. So getting back to this this command, that's the question we got to ask today. What happens when you commit adultery? Well, here's the penalty for adultery. And... This is why there are, there, are, there are penalties for adulteries in the Bible that you see. There's actually, you see, you see there's a penalty in the Old Testament, there's a penalty in the New Testament, and then there's, there's one for the eternal kingdom of God. And listen, in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery was death. Let that sit for a minute. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. It actually says this in numerous places in the Old Testament, but it says this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. You see, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there was not an opportunity for repeat offenders. (laughs) You commit adultery, you die, we move on, right? I mean, that's why sometimes people argue like, like, you know, what about, you know, it, you know it, when people think about divorce as Christians, right? We tend to miss the point. People are like, well, could they get divorced in the Old Testament? You know, but, you know, why is there divorce in the New Testament? No, in the Old Testament, there wasn't any divorce because if your spouse is dead, you don't really need to walk down to the courthouse steps and submit paperwork for divorce, right? You got the funeral, you move on. So let's say, I mean, think about this today, right? Let's say you committed adultery. Think of it like this. If you were born on a different day, you'd be dead, I mean, the only difference between death and the date of your birth, you've committed adultery, you should be dead. Do you feel that? I want you to feel that. I want us to feel the severity of this because God takes this very seriously. When I hear people say things like, hey, everybody makes mistakes, nobody's perfect, who are you to judge, right? Well, there, there, was a, there was a time when that offense would cause them to be dead. we got to think about that. Now, in the New Covenant today, that's not the case. I mean, you know, and so there should be some sense of gratitude that, that they even have breath in their lungs to state their case, to be able to explain, right, what happened, because there wouldn't have been any explaining in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the penalty was death. In the New Testament, the penalty we see is divorce, And Jesus explains that in in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, I'll I'll just turn to it real quick. You don't have to, you probably don't, I didn't tell you what the scriptures were today, so you don't have them up. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 19. Verse nine. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife Okay, so G- Jesus is saying this, right? Oops, sorry. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Now, that's a, that's a huge word, actually. And, 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 but for our purposes, we're just going to say primarily adultery. But sexual immorality could actually include a lot of other things. And I think the reason why is because people are really perverted, and we can find a lot of ways around rules, just to be honest. But for our sake, we'll just say except for adultery, because adultery is included in sexual immorality. And he marries another, he commits adultery. All right, that's, what he, that's, the, that's what's happening here. Now, what's the condition or, or what's the clause, right? What's the exception for divorce that Jesus is talking about here, right? I mean, you're, you're supposed to be married. The two become one. That's what a covenant it is. So a covenant, I mean, if you a covenant is like welding together two pieces to literally make them one. I mean, it is using together two to make one. There is no more mine and yours. That's not the way a marriage works. It's not, it's not, my, it's, it's ours. There's no one. So the only way that this can be separated, a covenant, the only way a covenant can be separated is to, Take a cleaver to, and just to the to one and make it two again. It's a bloody. I mean, it's a, There's no easy way to do this. There's no painless way to split a covenant. You can't. You take a covenant that is something that is one. The only way to make it two is to break it. To break it into two pieces. To destroy it. So when you understand that the marriage is a covenant, and that's God's intended metaphor and in His image for His relationship with us then you understand why the consequences for adultery was spoken of with such a serious, in such a serious offense. Now, some Christians, I get get it. You know, I should say this as well. On the other side of this, uh, some Christians will come along and they'll get really legalistic about this with you. And you probably heard some people say, no, you should never, 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 never get divorced. Divorce is something that you should never ever do. Well, I, I I believe that divorce is something that you should never rush into in the same way that you should never just rush into marriage. So for those of you who are hearing this, hear me on this, all right? Adultery does not mean that you should get divorced. Adultery just means that that's a possibility if there's no other way. It's not a requirement. You don't have to get divorced. But according to Jesus, you you have the right to that's what he's saying here in Matthew 19. But I would still encourage nearly everyone who's experienced, and obviously, listen, I know that there are many variables and many different cases and things like that, but the encouragement would be everything you could to go back to that vine that has been severed and try to nurture it and feed it and water it and tend to it to see if maybe you could get it to grow again. I mean, if you're gonna do that with someone else anyway, put all that time and energy and effort and investment in, then oftentimes it makes good sense to go and try to put that same investment into the relationship that you already have. That's why I would never discourage anyone from, uh, I I would never encourage anyone to just rush into a divorce in the moment of being hurt. Um, It's good, I think to, take a little time. If you're a victim of adultery, I get it. It's, it, it. You're, you're angry. There's, there's shock, there's frustration, there's horror, there's embarrassment. And, and often you just want to run straight to it. Right. And, and even in that case, I know it's emotional. Circumstances can be varying and diverse, but for the same reason that we should never just rush into getting married, I would never encourage anyone to rush into divorce either, rush out of marriage. And these are massive decisions that involve so many. I mean, they can involve so many different things. It's so hard to speak of it in a general way in a sermon because some of you might be listening right now and you're like, "I don't, you don't understand," because you don't understand my situation. You're right, I don't. That's why it's so difficult to, to to use sweeping broad generalizations. But in a general way, I would say, is there any possible way of renourishing this? So anyway, before I conclude, I need to, I need to bring this to a conclusion. I want to do two things real quick before I conclude. The first thing I want to do is this. I want to point out another one of these old covenant, new covenant distinctions that's really important to consider, Um, because I know a a lot of you right now might be like, as you're listening, you might be deceived, right? Because you're thinking to yourself, I've never committed adultery. Well, don't get too proud because you probably have. Here's what Jesus has to say. and, and, And I find this curious about Jesus. This is in Matthew chapter five. Yeah, what I find curious about Jesus is people who don't know the Bible, they tend to think, they make statements like, well, the God of the Old Testament, you know, he's, he's the angry and harsh God. But that Jesus is actually kind of cool. I mean, Jesus is nice. Well, not the Jesus of Matthew 5. Because what Jesus does in Matthew 5 is he takes the, the Old Testament laws and he actually makes them more difficult. He doesn't lessen the requirement of the law. He actually increases the requirement of the law here. If you read the Bible honestly, you'd probably say things like, well, the God of the Old Testament's really tough, but he's nothing like that Jesus. (laughs) Jesus takes things to a whole other level. So here's one occasion where Jesus does that. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So where do we hear that? We hear that in Exodus 20, 14, our study today. So Jesus is a Bible teacher. He's commenting here on the 10 commandments, specifically the seventh commandment, right? And then he says this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, when they heard the seventh commandment, The people thought that adultery was merely what you do with your body. But Jesus says that before it involves your body, it starts in your heart. And then it goes maybe to your mind, to your eyes. And you start committing adultery with your heart before you even begin to to commit it with your body. You see, body adultery and heart adultery both Count according to Jesus. Heart idolatry and adultery always precedes body idolatry and adultery. Why do I say it like that? Here's why. Because this is simply a violation of the first two commandments. Everything is. Everything that we see in terms of the different sins that you might commit are a violation of the first. Everything goes back to those first two commandments. The first commandment, there is one God and you worship him alone. That's it. One God, worship him alone. Those are the first two commandments. So if you start worshiping sex, then all of a sudden sex becomes a God to you. It becomes an idol that you've created. It's violating the first two commandments, which which leads to then violating the seventh commandment. And so Jesus, as he always does, he deals with the heart issue behind it all. And that's where this begins. I want to conclude this message today with a word of hope, okay? Would that be okay with you? <laughs> the gospel is about, ultimately... That's what the gospel is about, and it should be included in every preaching of the gospel. and unfortunately, I know this has probably happened. Some people tuned out the video after hearing me you know talk about defining marriage at the beginning, perhaps and and if they didn't turn it off then they certainly probably turned it off when I started talking about the death penalty for adultery and and maybe then happens when, when when that happens is people then begin to judge all of Christianity right in their hearts and in their minds or maybe on their timeline right right by one statement it's a lot like reading a headline and making a judgment about something without ever actually reading the the article or, or watching the video right I mean we live in a headline culture just a few words are enough to make a lifelong judgment of someone right it doesn't matter if we misunderstood the context or if we even considered the context at all that's just we, that's, that's, it's amazing to me that that's where we live today. Listen, we can't live this way, guys. We we can't. We can't survive this way, much less try to thrive in life. If if there is no grace, then we're doomed. So can I read you a story of hope and grace? John chapter eight. In John chapter eight, it says this: Jesus at dawn went down, Jesus went down to the Mount of Olives early in the morning and he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and they sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious folks, they brought a woman who had been caught in, here's our topic of the day, adultery. So question, is she guilty or innocent? This woman woman of adultery. Well, she was caught. So she's guilty, right? Caught in the act. So, Yes, yes, and I know there was a man too, right? But for some reason, this is just an example of the Pharisees' pride, right? They bring the woman along. And they say, now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. What do you say? Maybe some of you that are watching and listening today, maybe you're in the position of this woman or the man that she was committing adultery with caught by God in the act of adultery. And right now you're before Jesus guilty. And these Pharisees look at Jesus and they say, so what do you say? What do you say? Well, this is what they said. John says that they said this to test him, that they might have some charges to bring against him. So Jesus then bent down and he began writing with his finger in the ground was he wrote there's a lot of speculation about what he was writing we don't know what it was and as they continued to ask him he stood up and he said this famous word to them he said let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her and then he bent down once more and he began to write on the ground again and when they heard it when they heard jesus say this they all went away one by one beginning with the older ones And Jesus was then left alone there with the woman standing uh, before him. So here we are. True or false? True or false question. Jesus was the only one who had the right to pick up a rock and kill this woman. True or false? True. He's the only one. He's the only one who had never committed body adultery or heart adultery. He's the only one who is sinless and with clean hands. He's the only one that according to his statement has the right to punish this woman by death. And Jesus stands up. Can you imagine this moment? Imagine being this woman. Jesus is standing over me and he has the right to kill me. And he said to her, woman, that's a term of endearment, where are they? No one has condemned you. And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, hear this, right? Every one of you hear this right now. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus went to the cross and he died for that sin of adultery. And he paid the penalty of death so that we could receive life. And he commands each one of us to go and sin no more. Listen, that is, that is the message of Christianity. I don't care what they tell you. That's the message of Christianity. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what God's word says to each one of you today. That is the message we preach. That is why we are Bible founded, scripturally saturated Christians, because that is what God's word says. Always remember this, that Jesus is the one who has the right to condemn you. And instead, he died in your place to save you. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that I get the opportunity to share your word with people on a weekly basis, regardless of what format it's in. It's still your word and it's still truth and it still goes out um, from from your heart into the hearts of those. And I know that when your word goes out, it's like a pharmacon. It's like, as as, uh, Paul wrote in... uh, in, in uh, I believe it's in Galatians where he says that that for some it's like good medicine that is healing to the soul, but for for others it's it it it's uh, it's distasteful, and it uh, it it ultimately kills them. Heart is hardened and they won't receive it. Um, and I know that that probably has happened today as we talked about this commandment. My prayer is that as we have talked about the 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 act of of the sin, as we've talked about the context, of sin is committed, the context of marriage, and the punishment that was originally in, instituted for it, the severity of it. I pray that what that illustrates is your heart. Curious, you take this relationship that we know of as marriage, and I pray that as we understand um, grace. As we understand you coming into this world to, to be the punishment that is deserved for this heinous sin, that you now extend grace to have maybe been living in this. And that because of your grace, because of the healing that comes from your grace, there is potential for to be healed. There is potential for you to take that which was severed and nourish it again and bring it back to life. And it doesn't happen quickly. But God, that's what you've done with each one of us. I mean, I, and it's why I think the, I, I love the, the, the illustration, the metaphor, the, the imagery of the marriage relationship as it's held up to the relationship that we have as Christians with you. God, we know that we, we sever, we try to continually sever our relationship with you through sin all the time, but you're always there to provide grace, the healing of grace, the nourishment that we need to continue to move forward, to be forgiven, Lord, We're so grateful that you don't cancel us. And I pray that we might extend that same grace to others this week. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.